Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. We hope you're enjoying your daily deep dives into politics. And if you are, you still have time to register for our live stream, which is this Thursday evening. Um, You can sign up to support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. It's as little as £2 a month and you'll get access to the live stream, plus a whole load of other benefits, including ad-free versions of the podcast, hallelujah, uh, and very stylish mugs and t-shirts too. So you just search Patreon Bunker Podcast, um, or you can just have a look at our social media uh, and it should all be on there too. On today's podcast, the worst global recession in 300 years is going to saddle Britain with debts unseen out of wartime. Bloomberg Economics estimates that the global cost of lost output from the pandemic could exceed, wait for it, $6 trillion. That definitely does not fit on this accountant's calculator, let me tell you. So how can Britain restore the health of its public finances without resorting to the failed austerity policies that followed the 2008 crash? Will our recovery from the COVID shutdown resemble a U, a V, a W, or even the dreaded capital L, with Britain's economy flatlining for several years? And what should the British government do to save us from the worst downturn that isn't just a once in a century event because economies all over the world have had to actively shut themselves down. It really is unique in human history. Well, with me to tackle that very small subject (laughs) and make sense of all of this is Ian Mulhern. He's Executive Director and Chief Economist of Renewing the Centre at the Tony Blair Institute. Hello, Ian. Hi, Neri. Great to be here. How are you? How, how's lockdown treating you so far? What week are we on now? Seven, is it? Yeah, we are. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, you probably have to ask my daughters because I've taken over their bedroom to uh, to turn it into my office. But so they're not very happy about that. Oh dear. Otherwise, things are all right. Good, good, good. Um, well, let, let's get into the meat of all of this. Um, I suppose most of us, uh, you know, have have lived through more than one recession. Um, or I'm sure all of our listeners remember the one that followed the financial crisis. Um, how would you say that this sort of corona-induced recession is different from ones we've seen before? Well, I think, as you said, uh, it's a very unique situation because really it's almost the first time in history where uh, it's almost been a policy decision to actually switch off the economy. I mean, usually governments are trying to make sure there's more wage growth, more jobs, uh, better economic outcomes for people. And here they've actively said, you know, don't go to the shops, don't go to the pub, um, stop stop working uh, and all those things. So it's very unique in that sense. And I think that's it's from that kind of um, uh, insight that I guess you get the kind of the, the way that the response has to be very different. It has to be about trying to hold the economy together, if you like. If you if you kind of think of it as a uh, a piece of electronic circuitry, the economy, um, we've sort of turned the power off, and we're trying to make sure that all the bits of the circuit hang together, so that when we can turn it back on, it still works. Uh, but the risk is that you know the longer it goes on. Uh, businesses will fold, people will become unemployed, and then lots of important businesses won't be there when we want to get back to normal. So the challenge is how can we minimise that damage? Mm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to get my head around is how we're going to service the corona 
caused debt. Um, now, politics is often said to be the art of the possible. You know, what, what can you do? What, what's politically salient? What, what do you think would be the most politically acceptable way for a government to service all of that debt at the moment? You know, should we be expecting tax rises, more austerity, or even allowing higher inflation, which seems to have been this taboo thing for the last few decades? Well, it's a it's a really interesting question, and when we come out of this, we're going to be in a very different world. But I think we've already stepped into that different world in a sense, and the way we will talk about government debts uh, in the years ahead, I think, will be very different from how we have in the past. And that's because today, in the wake of this pandemic crisis, um, governments all around the world have either explicitly or implicitly said that they're going to stand behind um, uh, their governments as they issue debt. And, and make sure that those governments can borrow cheaply. Um, and they're sort of, uh, especially in the case of the Bank of England, they're guaranteeing that. Um, so in a sense, they're controlling interest rates and they're not leaving it up to the market. So whereas in the past, and particularly after 2008, we might have worried, oh, you know, what will happen if, uh, if, bond, if the bond market takes fright and investors decide they don't want to buy UK government bonds anymore? Will we, will we be able to service the debt anymore? Uh, well, now we don't really have that problem anymore. We have a different kind of problem. We have the Bank of England standing behind the government and the, and guaranteeing to, to pay the bills, if you like. The question is, how do you get out of that situation? And I think it will probably be um, a very long-term challenge, a bit like it was after the Second World War, when we had very high ratios of debt to GDP. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, central banks held interest rates low, then we saw inflation, as you kind of mentioned, and that ate away at some of the pile of debt. And that may be something that happens um, uh, in, in the, in the, you know, later, in, later, long after the crisis is passed, but we'll have to see. But I think essentially we won't be worried about paying off this debt as quickly as uh, perhaps we might have done in the past, because for the foreseeable future, we're just going to be able to, uh, we're going to have to uh, just manage high levels of debt. And I think in the medium term, we might see higher taxes and things like that. But essentially, it, it's going to be some way down the track, I think, because we need to get the economy back up and running before we can even think about that. We do, and, and we're going to go into some detail on that in a bit. Um, but before we do, um, you know, you're, you're chief economist uh, of Renewing the Centre uh, at the Tony Blair Institute, and some of our listeners uh, might bristle at that. You know, we'll, we'll get the usual mutterings that, you know, centrist Blairite economics set the foundations for this crisis, and Rishi Sunak spending proves that mass government intervention is totally inevitable for the foreseeable future. How, how do you... Uh, the Tony Blair Institute respond to those sorts of challenges? Well, I think in terms of the reaction we've seen from the government, uh, both in terms of the kind of microeconomic measures, the measures they put in place to, you know, support people's jobs or to um, stop businesses going to the wall and all that, uh, that kind of thing, all the way through to those uh, macroeconomic uh, measures and how the Bank of England has responded to these unprecedented events by doing doing things it's, it's not done in living history really before. I think they show that this is what the state is for. It's for um, uh, saving the economy and, and, and helping society out in these emergency situations. That doesn't mean that in normal times uh, that, 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 that the state should be deeply involved in the economy. It doesn't prove anything of that sort. Uh, but what it does show is that this is, this is the role the state should play. It should, in this crisis, it should be trying to 
safeguard people's livelihoods and their lives and doing whatever it takes to do that and not being dogmatic about it. Uh, and, and so I think, it's, it's, if you like, it's the exception that, that pro- proves the rule. Um, and 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 you're right. You know we we do need to um, make sure that the government uh, packages and the, the interventions that it's making are getting to the right people at the right time. And uh, on that train of thought, there was a Bloomberg report yesterday um, that that said not only, of course, have we handled the the outbreak of the virus poorly by comparison to other countries, but also the financial support for businesses. Um, they say that the business interruption loan scheme has failed um, because the big four. Banks sort of can't or won't process the loans quickly enough. Um, I think I think they said something like British business needs upwards of forty billion um, in terms of these loans, but the banks have only given out about five billion. What, what, what in your view has gone wrong, and why can't our banks serve our small businesses better? Well, it's it's very. I'm not close enough to the detail really to be able to say what what's gone wrong. It's clearly a worry that the loans aren't getting out of the door quickly enough because without that. Uh, financial support, lots of companies are going to fold and then the costs in the long run to us all in terms of our living standards will be higher as a result. So it's really important that uh, we get those uh, those schemes up and running and get the money out of the door. Um, it, it, but the, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about exactly what's going wrong, which is to, to give the government its due is sort of inevitable when they're trying to innovate so quickly and develop huge schemes to get billions of pounds out of the door within days. Um, it's inevitably going to be difficult. Um, uh, I've no doubt they're looking at what they can do to make it work better. Uh, And we've seen some movement from the government, especially with the smaller companies, with uh, switching more to grants and 100% guaranteed uh, loans and things like that, which which will all help. Uh, Whether it's enough, I mean, they'll have to keep it under review, but it is very, very complicated. Tell us just how bad is a continued shutdown of the economy. You know, we've talked about small businesses folding in in the previous question because they can't access grants and loans quickly enough. But but if this persists, just how bad could it get? Yeah, I think one of the challenges with this is that obviously the immediate lockdown is is distressing for everyone and damaging. Lots of people uh, have lost their jobs or they've gone on furlough or, you know, they're worried about making ends meet. And so there are real problems in the short term. But the longer it goes on, the more the kind of permanent damage could be bigger and everybody could be poorer uh, in, 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 for many years ahead. And so and I think that that long term damage is kind of growing by the day. Um, you know, lots of businesses can probably you know, put up with being um, on, uh, on lockdown for a month or so. But once it gets to two or three months, they start to wonder whether they can really carry on and they have to make difficult decisions about uh, whether they whether their business has a future. And, and that's when the long-term effects really start to uh, compound themselves. So it's not, it's not sort of, um, it's almost the case that sort of four months of this would be much more than twice as bad than two months of this. And, and that's, I think, mm. the challenge that government faces when it has to make this very difficult decision about whether to lift the lockdown. And, and when it does lift the lockdown, or, or when at least it, it sort of publishes a, a proper exit strategy, what do you recommend that that strategy looks like? Well, I guess in terms of um, the the activities they need to um, sort of have in place, or the the, the elements of a, of, a, of a strategy, what we've been looking at is, is thinking about well. You know, they've only really they tried lots of different measures before they managed to get the virus under control, and it was only the full lockdown package that that really managed to finally stop the virus spreading. 
And that doesn't bode very well because it means as soon as we start to ease, there's a risk that we may flip into the uh, sort of zone where the virus starts to accelerate again. Um, so the question as they ease is, well, how good are their countervailing measures, their containment strategy and their strategy to shield uh, more vulnerable people uh, from from getting the virus? Um, and, you know, containment is all about all the things we've been hearing about, mass testing. It's about tracing and, uh, and apps that can trace people who've had the, had the infection. It's perhaps about using things like face coverings and masks. There's lots of different levers you can pull. Uh, and then on the shielding side, we need to work out, is there a way that we can, if our containment strategy fails, is there a way that we can prevent the most vulnerable people from contracting it? Because we do know that for lots of people, especially younger people, uh, this virus doesn't pose very much of a risk at all. But for others, it's a very serious mm-hmm. risk indeed. And so we have to use that difference, in a sense, uh, to our advantage. Um, and, and I think that's mm-hmm. the question is how good, are their, how good is their plan on those two things? I mean, I, I, I sort of hear this um, uh, idea that particularly primary schools could open more quickly because the threat to very young children is so low. But of course, children live with parents and parents themselves can be immune compromised as can grandparents and things like that so uh, you know how how effective can the shielding really be if you open up uh lockdown to just you know one section how how does it not just spread very quickly uh, again or, or would we have to have a situation where children who have vulnerable relatives don't come back to school I think there may need to be nuances like that. Um, I mean, there's never going to be a completely perfect risk-free approach. We are going to be in a difficult world of, of difficult decisions. Uh, there's no way around that. But I think one thing to to think about is that it's not. We're not. We shouldn't be too um, focused here on individual level risk. We should be thinking about mm-hmm. that reproduction number R the rate at which the virus mm. spreads. Now, if you open schools and the reproduction number stays below one, that means the virus will continue to die out and it will become increasingly rare and there won't be any risk from going to school at all. Whereas if we do things that cause the virus to start accelerating, then the same kids going to the same school will now be at much more risk. So it, it's not mm. so much about, you know, are kids at risk from going to school? It's uh, what's happening to that reproduction number across the whole of society. That's the thing that determines the risk. And as long as we can open schools safely from a kind of society-wide perspective, then children and their parents will be safe from that. There won't be a problem with it. Mm-hmm. And, and at the Tony Blair Institute, you've um, published uh, work that, that talks about a contingent exit plan. Um, and I think it would be useful just to you know, explain what, what that contingent is and how it differs from the, the government's five tests for releasing lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, uh, I think the, the kind of starting point here is we all know that we're in a world of uncertainty here. We know that we, we, we can't be sure whether the virus will come back again. Everybody knows we have to deal with this uncertainty. But right now we're in a place where nobody can really think about the future. They can't plan when they're going to see loved ones. They can't plan when they're going to get a new job or move house. Uh, businesses can't don't know where their next customers are going to come from. And nobody really has a sense of where we're going here and how we're going to manage that uncertain future. So I think the government can really do a lot, take us a, lot, a long way down this track uh, to, to sort of lift some of that uncertainty and say, well, look, we can't tell you exactly what's going to happen in two or three months' time. What we can tell you is that here's how we'll respond and here's what it will mean for you if certain things happen. 
And by doing that, it would really allow people to start to think about the future, to start to plan uh, and make contingency plans from businesses to to families. Um, And so essentially, I think, you know, what you need to have is a is a, a pl- the government needs to shape up a plan which doesn't just have random details about whether we should wear masks on the tube, but covers three things really. The kind of the what, what are the different levels of lockdown we might see? And then a, a when, what, what are the triggers that they'll use, the measures that they'll use to decide which level we should be on? And then the, the how, which is what are the measures they're going to employ to make sure they keep us safe, keep that reproduction number down when they do move to these different levels? And if they could give us a plan like mm. that, that would really now enable people to start planning what the next few months might look like for them. Ian, I mean, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And it really is, though, however, you know, one thing for a government to begin easing lockdown restrictions and trying to encourage people to go back to work if you know they they work in an industry that is now being opened up but poll after poll this weekend showed that people are um happy with lockdown they do not want it lifted at the moment they don't think the virus is under control essentially they're afraid they're afraid to go back to work to sit on a crowded bus to sit next to colleagues how does the government tackle the need to kickstart the economy um against this lack of belief among the public that it's safe to do that yeah, I think this is, this is a really massive challenge. But the v- first thing I would say is that we, we, lots of people are happy with lockdown, but also we've got to bear in mind the very large costs uh, of, of that lockdown. I mean, we know, we know, for example, from figures about urgent cancer referrals or A&E visits, that there are lots of health problems being stored up. Um, and that's very worrying. We know that there's you know, concerns about domestic violence on the rise. We know there are concerns about educational disparities and inequalities. You know, there are lots, of, and and uh, and on top of all that, lots of us have are very lucky that we can work from home and keep our jobs. Whereas for many people, that's simply not an option. And so this is a really very frightening time for a lot of people. So the balance of uh, risks is 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 very uh, a fine one, and we need to really think about it. But how do we get to a situation where people are happy to sort of start to go go back to work, start to do things that are a bit more normal? Um, well, I think it, that is about the government putting in place a plan that shows people that they've got it under control, that they know what, how that people shouldn't, how society should react if a certain set of uh, uh, developments occurs. And I think if they started to set out that uh, rationale, they start to communicate more clearly and to um, explain their workings a little bit more. I think we could start to get some confidence back uh, that the government had a grip on this thing. Uh, and I think they they've. Uh, kind of not really done enough of that. I mean, there's clearly a huge amount of work going on behind the scenes and they're thinking about all sorts of things. But they just need to, I think, be more open with people and more clear about the road ahead and that will start to build Mm -hmm. confidence. You, I mean, a lot of what you talked about is about providing that certainty where there has just been absolutely none, um, trying to uh, allow people to be able to make plans to almost offer a little bit of hope. Um, and certainty is something that um, is or uncertainty is is often linked into uh, the whole issue of Brexit and I couldn't personally let an entire episode go without briefly touching on it. Um, Some people are saying that we may as well leave with no deal now because the cost of it will be a mere rounding error in the scale of the coronavirus recession. Is that true or would it be more like pouring oil on a fire? Uh, I definitely think it'd be more like pouring oil on the fire. Uh, um, I mean, I, I think uh, 
you know, you, 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 we have a situation where many businesses are going to struggle hugely. You know, the other parts of our economy that are going to be struggling, but maybe aren't, uh, perhaps uh, can come back to life more easily, are perhaps some of the exporting businesses and that kind of thing. Now, if we're about to hit them with Brexit... Uh, then I think, you know, we're clobbering perhaps the other part of the economy um, uh, straight after we've just had the shutdown uh, hitting hitting a number of domestically focused sectors. So it it really does seem like um, a a, a very bad time. I mean, there's never a good time uh, to wrench yourself Mm. out of the biggest trading block in the world, but um, without a deal. But this, I think, would be uh, at the height of folly. And uh, on that uh, very good note, and I'm very pleased to hear you say that, um, I think I think we'll wrap up today. Um, Ian, thanks so much for joining us on The Bunker Daily. It was really great to have you on. Listeners, we've got the full-length show tomorrow and The Bunker Daily editions on Thursday and Friday. And don't forget our live stream on Thursday. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up. And we'll see you there. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. On audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.